Welcome again to Bobby and Jens. My name is Bobby Julik, and a very warm welcome to my brother from Berlin, Jens Vogta. All in order over there, Jensi? Yes, it is. But to be perfectly correct, I am your brother from Cologne because currently I'm working for Eurosport and I be commentating Perinis, so I'm just around Cologne. So we do the commentating from here. Cologne. Nice. Nice. We have another great guest this week, folks. Mari Holden is taking time out of her incredibly busy schedule to sit down with us and tell us her story about her life as a junior triathlete star, then becoming one of the best time trial riders of her generation before transitioning into one of the greatest ambassadors for our beautiful sport. Hi, Mari, and welcome to Bobby and Jens. First off, happy International Women's Day to you and all of the other women out there. Thanks, Bobby. Hey, Jens. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on International Women's Day. Thanks for joining yeah, us. Yeah, you've, you've, uh, you've been busy, so thank you for sharing the time. But uh, there, there's so many things we want to talk to you about today. From your start in triathlon to becoming world champion and Olympic silver medalist, talk a little bit about retirement and that transition. You know, working as a DS, working with USA Cycling, uh, especially the the free bikes for kids program, mentoring all the young athletes and, and coaches that you've come into contact with, and the Scudiera, the Pinarello Scudiera Ambassador Program. So. Then you also have a Zwift ride that we can talk about as well. So, man, you are busy these days. I have definitely been busy, but busy is a good thing. I think that when I don't have anything to do is when when it gets problematic. <laughs> so, you know, I'm excited where things are and about to share it all with you today. That's awesome. Well, let's start from the beginning then. So you grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and your first sport was triathlon. Is that correct? Well, I only spent about a month of my life in Milwaukee. So I was born there and then we moved to um, California. So I grew up um, in Los Angeles, but my dad joined the military. And so we traveled around a bit after that, um, lived in Europe for a while. Um, but basically when we came back to the States and settled down, we settled in Ventura, California when I was in sixth grade and I spent all my high school days there. Uh, well, elementary school through high school. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely have that, that air of a Californian rather than, uh, somebody from the Midwest, but, uh, <laughs> bad research, Julik, bad research. Um, so so yeah, tell us about your your childhood then. I mean, you just said that your 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 dad traveled around a little bit, but once you got to California, um, what, were you always into sports? Well, I mean, I had always been really active and loved sports in general, and I swam and I ran. Um, but I went to a pretty non-traditional uh, school. Uh, once we got back to California, my dad wanted us to be in a private school, and I went to school in Ojai, uh, behind Ventura, and. We had horses there and soccer was a big sport and amazingly cycling was also a club sport there. So I got introduced to cycling um, when I was 12 and just thought it looked like fun with a cycling group and went out and rode and just loved riding my bike. So talking about bikes, when did you actually get your first bike? Was it from your high school or was it a present from your parents, well, your first own bike? Well, um, I basically like saw the cycling club and thought it looked cool. So I borrowed my girlfriend's bike and her shoes and everything. Cause you know, it's pretty specialized. So, um, I got all the equipment and went out on my first ride, which was, um, around Lake Casita. So it was about a 50 mile loop and I just loved the feeling of being free and how it felt. And so after that, I convinced my parents to buy me a bike and, the rest is kind of history. So, but I didn't get right into racing a road bike. I got involved in triathlons because that's what was popular in California. Do you remember the mark of a uh, bike that your parents bought you? Your My first, first bike one? was a Trek, a yellow and white Trek. <laughs> and I loved it. <laughs> Mine too. Mine was a Trek 660 with Campanolo Record Group 
and my dad bought the exact same bike. So, you know, all those stories about, oh, the kid has to earn it with a paper on a paper route or working and, you know, mowing lawns and shoveling driveways. <laughs> my dad knew me better than that. He got me pretty much the um, the top of the line back then. But Yenzi, I'm, I'm a little bit curious about your first bike now that we're on the I mean, you're a Trek ambassador. I mean, you have to say Trek to this response, right? <laughs> Actually, my friend, you tried to get me, uh, throw me off balance, but I got you. It was a Trek bike because um, back in East Germany, we had one company, East Germany, communism. We had one company for radios, for TVs, for bikes, for cars. That company called Diamant. You would pronounce it Diamond Bikes. When the wall came down, a lot of companies run into trouble with, you know, capitalism, free enterprise. Trek actually decided to buy that company, Diamant, because it's uh, the oldest bike factory in Europe, maybe even in the world, but we have it on paper, oldest bike company in Europe. Trek bought it to keep it alive. So how life swings in circles. Actually, my first bike is Trek bike today. Yep, <laughs> there we go, my friends. Wow. Not only are we all in, in, you know, having a big birthday, I won't say which one it is, but we're all having a big birthday this year. We also started out with Trek bicycles. That's a, didn't expect that to come up. I didn't, I didn't expect, expect that, that either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're, you're a junior triathlete of the year in 1991. Mm -hmm. And I remember first meeting you at the Olympic training center in 1992. Um, did you go there for triathlon or we, did you go there to, to, you know, for USA cycling to, to a camp there? Well, so I had gone to the training center for triathlon and, um, the triathlon wasn't an Olympic sport yet. It was still trying to become an Olympic sport, but they allowed, they were bringing athletes in for testing and that kind of stuff. And when I was there, I, I went in and I met with the national team coach for cycling and I, I've had very few moments in my life where I'm super aggressive about something, but I just said, I want to be, I want to go to the Olympics, you know, and I want to get involved in cycling. And now that I think about it, having been a national team coach and a director and all that stuff, I think about it, I'm like, oh my gosh, that really was pretty ballsy for someone to go in there and just say straight out what they want to do. Um, but you know, to her credit, she invited me to some camps after that and stuff. And I just, uh, took it from there basically. And once I switched, I never looked back. I, I haven't done a triathlon really since then. Hey, a quick question. Um, just to explain to our listeners, OTC is for Olympic Training Center. And me, as a young amateur with the German national team, we had twice an altitude training camp in Colorado Springs. We stayed at some Holiday Inn, but we had every day breakfast and dinner at the OTC. I was there one year. Remember the actor Dolph Lundgren? He once did a movie where he Rocky where he played yeah five? Uh, where he no no he wanted a movie where he played a um did Descartes, Decathlon okay. people he do Decathlon what do you call him Decathlon yeah that's the one thank you um, and he and he did a movie about that and he actually did train in the OTC so it must have been ninety three or ninety four I believe I was there twice so we probably all somehow have been at the same years at the OTC. Isn't that funny how the world is like? It is pretty, it's pretty wild because it's way different now. Like, I mean, back then it was just the army barracks. I mean, USA Cycling was basically in a, in a truck out back, right? Bobby, that's how it was when you were there, right? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. But I do remember now that you mentioned it, Yenzi, there was a shortage of yogurt and soft serve ice cream back in that time. And probably, so maybe you were there. Probably chocolate that's milk. Your vi I love the chocolate <laughs> milk you were serving there for brekkie. Man, I think I had a liter or like half a gallon of that every morning. Oh, I tell you, don't invite Jens to your house to stay for a month unless you're ready to go to the grocery store and get yogurt basically every other day. I've never, I've never seen anybody eat more yogurt than this cat here. But uh, yeah, the OTC days, those were those were fun. But uh, I mean, we were there for competition, right? And you mentioned that you wanted to go to the Olympics. And you were national champion in the time trial in 1995. Pretty 
kind of setting you up good for 1996. Then in 1996, you win the time trial again, and then you win the both both time trials in the Olympic trials. But then you weren't selected for the Olympic team. Tell us a little bit of, of that deception, I guess. Well, you know, I mean, it all comes down to how they were trying to build the Olympic team. There was, I mean, there was Rebecca Twig, who is a legend and who was probably going to had a good shot of winning a medal in the pursuit and in the time trial if she did it. Um, and so I think they thought that they had a medal secured with her. And so they wanted to tie up, uh, they wanted to try and, and win the road race, which they wanted there. You can only have three women on the road team. So they basically um, chose for the road race, not the time trial. So even though I won the um, won the time trials, I didn't get to get to do the road race or time trial. So it was it was just a decision on how they wanted to tactically do the Olympics because there are more events than spots. Right. Uh, I, I remember it was always very uh, difficult there just because of you couldn't have an athlete come in just for one event. You had to have them do two events and, you know, the different number of entrants that you could have in. I, I know it was was complicated. But having been uh, in your place and missing the Olympics um, many times before I finally got to go to one, you know, when, when you win, when you do what you think you should do and you don't get choosed and then you have to wait, what, four more years Tell us a little bit about, did you use that as motivation and drive? Because, I mean, we're getting to what happened in in the year 2000 and in Sydney, but like between 96 and 2000, were you like, where was your mind at? Were you saying like, I'm going to use this as motivation or was there some difficult times in there as well? Well, for sure there are difficult times, um, but it was motivation. I mean, at first when I didn't get selected, I was really hurt and upset. And, you know, you come to these points where you decide, is it worth it? Why am I doing this? Um, but the part of me, the inside me, um, that had been inspired from the Olympics since the time I was a kid still felt like that dream was there. And, um, I recognized that, you know, life isn't fair. <laughs> it's like you can't, it's just not necessarily always going to go your way. Um, but, if you want to try and be successful, you have to kind of deal with the cards you're dealt and um, move forward. And, you know, sitting back and looking at it with Dean, who was my coach, um, we looked at it and basically said, you know, there's nothing for me in the U.S. with the racing. I, it's great early season racing, but I'm not going to get to the level I need to unless I 100 percent just co commit and go to live in Europe and race on European teams. And Henny Top, who was our national team coach at the time, um, got me on a team in Germany. Um, and so basically I went over there and just uh, moved in with the girls there, <laughs> which was a totally, you know, different experience than what I had grown up with. So, um, you know, I think that it was, it was a really good thing for me to, to do and to experience and it helped me grow in a lot of different ways. Do you still speak a few words German? No. <laughs> My German was always so horrible that no one wanted to hear it anyway. So they basically all just wanted to speak English to me. <laughs> but, I mean, I can understand, but I, it, you don't want to hear me speak it. <laughs> Even though I took it and, you know, I took it and like I took courses for it to go over there. Um, but yeah, it was terrible. I never sounded good coming out of my mouth. <laughs> but, um, but going there was um, amazing. And, you know, the team didn't have much money. And so I have a lot of stories about what it was like to, to travel with a, a team that's just trying to save as much as they can everywhere. But um, I think it made me tougher. <laughs> when your phone bills are higher than the amount of money you're making, that's a, you know, interesting place to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, talk about making you tougher. Mm -hmm. You said one of the reasons why you didn't get selected for the 96 Olympics was because you weren't good enough in the road race. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like yourself and... And Dean Golich there came up with a plan of working on your weaknesses. And yeah, you turned it around and, and, you know, you came back and won the time trial championships again in 1998, the nationals. And then in 1999, you won the, the road race championship as well as 
the TT championship. This is all going into the Olympics. So now that you've done that, and I believe that you were the only U.S. woman ever ever to have done this, did that pretty much solidify the selection for the Olympics in, in Sydney in 2000? You know, I, I feel like I had a really good shot at it. And, you know, a lot of people don't don't consider my road racing career in the same way they do my time trialing. But I was definitely on the podium in the top three for, you know, several of the national championships. So I could def- I got my road racing going well, too. And I, you know, I don't think you ever can say you've solidified your spot on the Olympic team. Um, but I felt like I had a good, good chance. Um I think part of like what you learn through your career is that you don't take anything for granted. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't feel like I was, you know, I knew there was always a chance that something could happen. So um, you just hope that you have the right day at the right time. It's funny that you say that because I missed the Olympics in 92, 96 and 2000. And when I was 32, all of a sudden I qualify for the Olympics in the first qualification race of the year, which was Perry Nice. And as the year went on, I was just like, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Something did happen. I wound up breaking my wrist in the, the Tour de France that year, but because Yenzi was such a good roommate and would butter my bread for uh-huh. me in the morning and get me through the stages on the Shams, um, I made it to Athens. But I did not consider myself going to the Olympics until I was on that airplane airborne for Athens. I always, and even when I got there, I was kind of looking around every corner, like, is there going to be somebody from USA Cycling coming up to me and saying, oh, you know what? <laughs> we replaced you at the last minute. But um, now let's talk about the Olympics. <laughs> you go to the Olympics in Sydney and you get a silver medal. I think everybody has dreamed from the moment they were made aware of the Olympics, of being on that Olympic podium with a medal around their neck. Tell us a little bit about your day and anything really, you know, unique that you can remember from that day, because it had to have been one of the best days of your career. I mean, for sure, leading into the Olympics, um, talk about the Olympics and it's great. But, you know, being a woman in cycling in the U.S., you know, my family and friends didn't really understand what we were doing. And there was nothing that... uh you know, the media wasn't the same back then. So nobody ever knew what races you were at or what you were doing. Um, so basically, the one thing everybody understood was the Olympics. And I was, when I realized that it was actually going to happen, <laughs> you know, a few weeks to go, I really kind of had a panic attack because it was like the first time in all these years that people were actually, you're on that stage where they're going to see what you're doing. And when you have a goal for so long since the time you're a kid, um, all of a sudden you realize that that it's your shot and you have to take it. And it's definitely an overwhelming, or for me, it was an overwhelming kind of experience. And it, I had almost like a mental breakdown right before leaving over it. And um, just, just the whole stress of everything. Um, and, I, I look back on it now and it's probably what makes, you know, sport so great is that you just don't, you don't know and you have to kind of face your fear and get out there. And I'm sure, I mean, you know, when you're on the start line in the Olympics for the first time, it's, it's an overwhelming experience. Um, but it's like what I was talking about on my Zwift ride today. I feel like, you know, um, you have to just kind of get in the flow and, and when the start gun goes off, that's when, that's when I get into that flow. So it's, it's like everything can be chaotic until that moment, but then all of a sudden you're in it and you can't like, I mean, you just are in a completely different world. And that's the world that when you're racing, you feel comfortable in and you're just doing your thing and you let your body do what it's supposed to do. And you trust that you're the training and the visualization that you've done on the course, et cetera, everything is going to come together. And, um, and for me, it did that day. And, but leading into it, we had the road race a couple of days before and I had a, um, a flat and then I had a crash. It was raining. Um, and Dean basically pulled me out of the race because I kept chasing on. And, you know, you can only chase on so many times in an Olympic race and still have something left for the finish. So it was obvious that I was strong, but I, I was probably burning too many matches and they pulled me out. And then I, uh, you know, was upset because it was the Olympic Games and I didn't finish the road race. Back to this whole, you know, getting 
I don't know, people thinking that you can't race on the road, which is, was not the case. Um, but then I, uh, but then to get into the time trial, you know, I realized it was my shot and it was a, it was a, uh, circuit. So we did it twice. And the first time I came through, uh, one of the coaches yelled at me that I was in second and I couldn't tell if I was in second for my, you know, my group or for the overall or what was going on. And, um, so, but I just kept riding and I didn't, I didn't like to have any data with me because, and I know everyone's different, but I didn't want any input. No, no radio, no SRM, no nothing. I didn't want to see it. Um, and so it was a, you know, I had, I had no clue what was going on, but I was going well. And when I finished and I was in first, it was, it was shocking. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, to finish the day in second to me was like a, a win, you know, cause it was, it had been my dream to stand on that podium since the time I had seen the 84 Olympics. So where, where's that medal now? Do you have it somewhere on the wall in your house or your apartment? <laughs> where's that medal? The medal is, is just in my, uh, my underwear drawer at home. <laughs> I, uh, I always think that I'm going to frame it or do something special with it. But the truth is, is when I go talk to kids or, you know, I have a group, I like to just grab it and take it with me because there's nothing like holding on to an Olympic medal. And I'm sure, you know, Bobby, the same with yours, they're heavy and they're just, they're so impressive. And it just has so many dreams built into it that I like to be able to, to take it and have kids see it. I totally agree. I, you know, also have a silver medal <laughs> and I just, I had a guy come in and fix my internet and my little router is right next to my medal. Mm -hmm. And he was like, wait a second, is that an Olympic medal? And I'm like, yeah, man, put it on. Uh -huh. And any workers or friends that come into my house, and I love that, that you do that for the kids because, you know, these grown men that are in my house doing, you know, certain, certain jobs get excited. You can imagine what it meant for a kid to actually touch it. So, okay, now you're an Olympic medalist. Your, your life has to be, feel different, but you have the world championships time trial coming up now. Most people would be like, wait a second, I got an Olympic medal, going to the beach, going to go do the talk show circuit. But how did you keep your focus in between the Olympics and the world championships, which ultimately you won? Yeah, you know, we didn't really have the talk show circuit for women <laughs> cyclists, but it was... Um, I got home and I was like so relieved from the whole experience. I didn't want to stress myself out and go to Worlds and I... I really didn't want to go. And Dean was just like, you don't have to decide right now uh, what you want to do. Just, you know, think about it. And then if you feel like going, we'll go. So, um, so after thinking about it, I, I just thought, to, uh, you know, I was, I knew that it was hard to, to do both. And I thought, I, I thought that I wasn't going to leave the opportunity out there to not go for it. And I'm really glad I did because winning the worlds that year, the course was completely different than the, um, the Olympics. The Olympics was pretty technical and the, uh, the worlds in Plouhé was, I don't think it's necessarily a course that you suited me the most because it has a climb towards the finish. Um, but it was, it was a, it was a good thing to go do and prove that I could do it on two different types of courses and to beat Jeannie Longo in France felt good. <laughs> if if I'm being honest. <laughs> oh man, you can be as honest as you want, but it, it's funny that you mentioned um you know Dean mm -hmm. and and the options that he gave you. Yeah. Listen, you you were going to that. <laughs> you were going. Yeah. He was just setting it up in a way that would make it be your decision. That's an old coaching technique. By He's the way. he you know. was the best at that or is the best at that. And I you know It was, it was never like he was talking me into doing things. And he was my coach my whole career, basically. So, you know, he knew me really well and what, what buttons to push. And basically, I think he knew that I was always going to decide to, to go do it if I had a, you know, if I didn't feel like I was pressured to go do it, I would always decide to, to try. So he always set it up in a way that kind of mentally manipulated me. <laughs> That's coaching. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, um, you retired in 2007 then, like yep, seven years after your um, Olympics. Um, 
and to transition into retirement. See, me, I struggle, I did, and I still do struggle with the fact that I'm just getting slower and weaker. And I hate that. Um, that's, I believe, the one thing I struggle with in retirement. I do enjoy that I have more freedom, that I can eat what I want, not only healthy diets, but I struggle with the fact that I'm just getting slower and weaker. So how was your transition? Like, what did you miss about cycling and what did you not miss at all? Well, I mean, that's a pretty loaded question. Um, you know, I didn't end my career the way I wanted. I had the iliac artery surgery in 2004. I had felt it the first time, like starting to have issues with it in 99. And then uh, it was really bad by 2004. And that's when I actually had a conversation with Stuart O'Grady about, you know, his surgery that he had had. And then I, I went and had, I went and had mine done. And I think that I stayed in the sport a couple more years just to prove to myself that I could still race and be competitive. Um, but those weren't like the happiest years for me, you know, I was constantly struggling with what's wrong with me, you know, how come I'm going hard, but I'm not, you know, excelling because, you know, when you're used to getting good results and suddenly you feel like you're not able to go as hard as you used to, that's a difficult thing to deal with. Um, and so, uh, so I didn't end the career the way I really wanted to. And I think I left feeling pretty empty at the end of it and um, really not sure what I wanted to do because I had been full on all I did, all I cared about was cycling and racing my bike. And uh, so I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Luckily, I had gotten my college degree and stuff like that. Um, but I kind of struggled to find out, find where I fit in. And um, I was doing sales for a while, uh, just uh, uh, cycling rep kind of stuff uh, or endurance sport rep. But it wasn't really fulfilling, and I was riding my bike, but it wasn't really bringing me joy like it had for most of my life. And even though I was still fit, I wasn't happy. Um, but then I started uh, working back with uh, Nicola Cranmer and the 2016 uh, team, it was called at the time. And so she said I could come in direct, and I, I had really wanted to work with juniors. And she had a junior team and the elite team. And so I started a DS for her team and really didn't get to do as much with the juniors as I had wanted. But I kind of started finding my footing again and how, you know, where my experience kind of fit in and helped uh, people. So so that was the beginning of things like turning around for me. So now um, you mentioned it uh, already. Uh, we would have some questions about that as well. When you were a sport director, you actually, the team was pretty successful. I believe you had not the biggest budget, but you actually were quite effective. You had a lot of good results. Um, and when you look back at uh, the days when you have been a rider yourself, what has changed from the days you were riding to the days when you were DS, has a lot of things gotten better in women's cycling? Everything has gotten better? Uh, what's your point um, of view on this? You know, I think um, a lot of things have really improved because there's more media attention now for the women. And I think that's got to be a con uh, trend that continues in order for women's cycling to, to be standalone successful. Although I never think it's going to be completely separate from what's happening in the cycling industry in general. Um, but I, I think that the women's world tour is an amazing uh, thing to have for the women now and being able to kind of be alongside the men's races is really going to help. And then the world tour teams. Um, but one of the things that I'm like, I have a hard time watching is the fact that we don't have as many of the stage races, the kind of more regional and national level races that used to happen. Um, we have a, the world tour events for women are amazing. Um, and all that, but I'm concerned that we don't have as many of the smaller races going on anymore. And especially here in the U S it's a problem looking at, like cycling in America and for kids in general, I, I'm concerned that in the U.S. we're not seeing um, as many races and kids, kids need to be inspired. And in order for them to be inspired, I think they need to see people racing. And so one of the things I want to see more of is more criteriums and USA Cycling working alongside them to, you know, uh, diversify our sport and get into areas where, you know, not necessarily just where road races are, but trying to bring them into the cities more so that we can have be in front of more kids. 
Yeah, kids always emulate uh, their heroes. And if there's no bike racing out there, they're going to find somebody else to, to emulate. But then after, after being a DS for Team 2016, which has turned into Team 2020, now 2024, you started working with USA Cycling, and now you're back with them again. Tell us a little bit about your role there at USA Cycling, especially the the grassroots program of getting more kids on bicycles. Yeah, thanks, Bobby. It's a uh, I'm excited because I came back to a new role at USA Cycling. They have restructured and they recognize the need to get more kids involved in cycling and basically connect the cycling community at the grassroots level. And so that's what my job is now as community director. And so my big program that I'm working on is a nationwide initiative to get more kids on bikes called Let's Ride. And it's uh, targeted at elementary school age kids. Uh, coaches in the U.S. can get continuing ed credits for putting on a one of these camps. So Bobby, if you were interested in doing one in, you know, South Carolina or whatever, all you'd have to do is, you know, reach me and I would send you our box that's going to have everything you need to do to put on a camp for the kids in your area. Um, but that being said, I also am going to be working alongside events to have Let's Ride events in conjunction with the racing. So at Tour of America Dairyland, um, you know, Intelligentsia Cup, those uh, national championships, um, uh, Winston-Salem has also talked to me. We'll be putting on some of these Let's Ride camps at events throughout the summer, um, trying to reach as many kids as possible. And what is the age group for the kids that you're looking at here for this program? Oh, so the age group is uh, age 7 to 11. Um, and it's it's a, it's a your basic bicycle, like, skills and safety course. So, you know, it's how do you adjust your helmet. It's um, it's basic, but the idea is that once we meet them, then we'll be able to connect them into the community. So, you know, let them know about the NICA programs in the area. Let them know about, um, I mean, seven-year-olds too young for NICA, but, you know, kind of tell them about the, you know, what options there are out there for them within cycling. And also working with groups like, you know, hopefully like Boys and Girls Clubs and YMCAs to reach uh, more underserved populations and diversify. Wow. That, that sounds fantastic. And I uh, <laughs> wish you all the best of luck with that. Spring is finally here. If you're just getting back on the bike and worried you're not in race form, don't worry. Active Pass from outside has you covered. Yenzi and I are both members and get to enjoy training plans, exclusive gear discounts, entry to cycling events, and more, including access to premium content from other outside publications like Velo News, Trail Runner, Yoga Journal, and Backpacker. And there's more coming soon, including Peloton Magazine. All in all, it's $350 worth of value for just $99. But if you enter our special coupon code, BobbyYens25 at checkout, you'll get another 25% off. Go to bellonews.com forward slash active pass and enter Bobby Yens 25 B O B B Y J E N S 25 all one word lowercase at checkout to receive our special 25% discount. Now back to our chat with Marv. So Mari, you're also a Pinarello Scuderia ambassador. Tell us a little bit about that program. Well, I had been riding Pinarellas when I was in Europe, and I had considered myself an ambassador before I even, you know, was approached with this program. But when they approached me about their program and let me know what they were all about, I I decided that I really wanted to be a part of it because um, their whole goal is to reach more people and lower the barriers of entry to cycling. And basically... Uh, get more women involved and more, more kids. Um, so I was really excited to be a part of it. And, and we have now a little bit more availability to do different disciplines. Like when, when we were growing up, if you were a road rider, you were a road rider. If you were a mountain biker, you were a mountain biker. If you were a BMX, you were a BMX. Now we have this wonderful world of gravel. I, I, I've seen in, in quite a few publications that you're riding your gravel bike. <laughs> what, what, what does gravel, 
I think everybody has a different gravel story. And I, to be honest, a few years ago before I got into it, I thought it was just, you know, just a fad and, you know, just guys that didn't want to ride a mountain bike or a cyclocross bike. They came up with a gravel bike. But every time I get on my gravel bike and go out with my buddies, it's it it's it's all a hundred percent the hype is all one hundred percent valid. I mean, I I just love it. But what is the the limited amount of gravel that you've done, how do you feel about going from being a an Olympic medalist in the time trial event to riding gravel? I mean, the worlds are a little bit different. They're they're completely different. <laughs> but I, I think that I like it because it's the same thing as why I like trail running versus running on the road. Um while I I enjoy riding my road bike, I've just I was ready to try something a little bit different that feels a little bit more adventurous and free. Um, and that's kind of the feeling I get riding my gravel bike. And, you know, I, I say I'm going to be doing some gravel racing and it's true. I will be going to the gravel races, but I think I'm at a point in my life where I'm not looking at it in the same kind of competitive way that, you know, we looked at it as, you know, in our twenties or whatever, where you're, you have these expectations and stress of, of the racing. To me, it's, I just want to go out there and push myself, stay healthy, you know, have a good time, see places that I would never have seen on my own. Like I would never be able to go to Montana and go pick out the right roads to to ride and feel safe about it. But doing a gravel event makes it so that you can actually go out there and explore. And I think that when I was younger, you know, when I was 12 and had just gotten my into cycling and, you know, exploring was a big part of it. And I feel like it's coming back to that for me is, it feels fresh like it did when I was a kid, you know, something totally new, but still within the proximity of my experience. Like I know how to ride on a gravel road, (laughs) my single track stuff, you know, I'm not so good once we get off the road and onto the single track, but I really don't care. (laughs) And it's your fault if you're behind me. (laughs) So now that you talked about the gravel bikes and exploring, did you got any adventurous stories? Did you ever meet a moose or an elk, a bear, a mountain lion? Did you ever saw any of that? I mean, hey, I'm from Europe. That is totally cool to me, you know? What? The biggest <laughs> thing I can see in Europe is like a little tiny fox. But I mean, over there in the US, there's some pretty big and wild animals out there. So did you ever encounter any of them or like a rattlesnake? I haven't really encountered much. I mean, I'm sitting here in Arizona and I saw a bobcat just like cruise by. So, I mean, there's definitely some wildlife around here, um, but I haven't really experienced it. And my experience on the gravel bike here is more like I want to stay away from the cactus (laughs) than I am worried about, you know, animals or something. It's my job to walk dogs every night um, back home. And uh, often my one of my sons comes with me to, you know, get some fresh air. And so we can let the dogs off the leash at night. It's sometimes it's pitch black dark and we like use our little telephones for lights. Um, and we know there's no danger. But I mean, if you're in the US, your dogs might get eaten by a mountain lion or a wolf or a bear. So uh, you need to behave differently if you just walk in the woods. So that's always uh, blows my mind that um, life is so different. Well, I'm doing, I signed up before I even was involved in the Pinarello Ambassador Program. I signed up for um, just Sarah's uh, last best ride in Montana because it's like, I'm going down my bucket list this year, kind of doing, checking all these things off my list. And going to Montana is one of them. And she's putting on a gravel event. So I decided I would sign up for it. And one of the things that they suggest is that you get the bear spray before before the event and I was like seriously <laughs> but I'm gonna have a totally new list and I you know I'm gonna learn a lot of things from these girls and bear spray is one of them clearly well just remember one thing you do not need to be the fastest you just need to be faster than the slowest member in your group because <laughs> the slowest one will get eaten just make sure you be faster than that person we'll see <laughs> Mari, one one other thing that I've noticed and I've actually participated in um, quite a few times is Zwift, right? Yes. Tell us a little bit about that because you've created, I, I, I started doing it like I think your first or second one, and I've really enjoyed starting off my Monday mornings by just going for a ride and, and listening to what you have to say. But tell us a little bit about that ride, what time it is, and how people can join. 
Yeah, so my ride on Zwift is called the Canyon Ranch uh, Wellness Ride, um, presented by Pinarello. And it's at 6.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, and basically, my idea was that I wanted to build community. And I wanted to be um, a resource. So every week, we have a different topic. Uh, today, we had mindfulness and getting in the, the flow. Um, and sometimes we have nutrition topics. I got you to be able to interview you on our ride the other day. Um, but it's just been um, a really nice experience for me. And I feel like, you know, our group is always around 400 people. And, you know, we get a lot of return people. So we're I think we're doing something right. And we're on to something. And we, you know, we keep the pace really at a comfortable pace where everyone can be conversational. And that's my goal is to have people involved in the, you know, involved in the conversation. So people can ask questions to the side and I'll answer them. But I also spend a lot of time preparing my, you know, presentation for the day and definitely have my points throughout the ride that I want to get across and take input from our, you know, the people, participants, you know, they can write to me on Instagram and let me know what they'd like to hear about. But I'm finding that the connection that you can get through virtual uh, riding is incredible. Um, I also ride Saturdays. I do a meetup with my dad and his group out in California. So we always ride and through the pandemic, it's been really nice because you can do a meetup that has uh, a no drop. So it's even better than real life because I can ride next to my dad for an hour <laughs> and he, he doesn't have to do anything but keep pedaling and we're, we're going to stay together. And, you know, we all connect on Discord and just chat and it's really, it's been super helpful through this time where, you know, people are looking for connection. And Bobby, I have to say that, I mean, some of the things, it's amazing to me how far it's come because when we used to ride the trainer, it was like work, you know, nobody wanted to sit there for hours on their trainer, but now with Zwift, it's almost like you're, you're in a game <laughs> and it's a, it's a great feeling and uh, it's so much easier than it, it used to be. Oh yeah. It beats the heck out of staring at your garage door, your basement washer, you know, washing machine. Um, but those were the two things that really helped me this last year was gravel riding and, and riding Zwift. So thank, thank goodness we, we have those things because uh, Bobby J would have gotten a little fat. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, like, I think it's the fittest I've been in a long time. And I, um, I hadn't had a, you know, power meter on my bike or anything like that for years. Cause I wanted no data, but in Zwift, you see it all right there. So you know, I've got now power meters on my bikes again and I'm like, I'm fired up again <laughs> and it's fun. Like I just, I'm enjoying it and I'm enjoying the community part of it. And, you know, I think that it, you were talking about getting older, um, but I feel like for me this year, turning 50, it's a milestone and I'm like, I'm just embracing it and saying, you know what? I don't care what anyone thinks anymore. You can think whatever you want. I'm doing things for me. And I, you know, like I said, I have my bucket list and I'm going to start just doing the different things that I've always wanted to do, but, you know, just didn't have the time or felt like it's, it's not fun to be a beginner at something. But I'm like, you know what? I've been successful on my bike. And, you know, just because I'm a beginner in something else, I'm not going to let it stop me from trying something new. And maybe that's also going to help me be able to relate more to people who are trying cycling for the first time or coming at it from a different way that, you know, we're all in this together. And I want to see people just love their bike as much as I do. Just for the record, I did not say how old you were going to be. You just did. Yeah, but, but now I'm owning that it, you, Bobby. I'm saying I love that. I don't that's care. what I'm saying. <laughs> that's that's exactly my point. I mean, fit at 50. That's my new that's my new thing. Hashtag fit at 50. Fit at 50. Let's go, Yenzi. Yeah, come on. <laughs> my hashtag is I mean, 50 is a new 30. Well, I like there we that go. one. <laughs> but I think, you know, a big part for me, Bobby, is that like at this point when you're 50 and you're kind of looking at your life and what you want to, you know, what you've achieved and where you want to go, I feel like Right now, I'm working on figuring out how to have a legacy in the sport, and I think that it's going to be with working with kids and, and trying to see more people get on bikes and, you know, have it help them in their lives like it did with me, because I feel like cycling is uh, 
you work through a lot of things and it's so good for you mentally and physically, and you can do it your whole life. And if we can get more people on bikes, the world is going to be a better place. 100%. <laughs> I couldn't agree more because you can do the bike with your friends, with your partner, with your kids, with your grandkids or with your grandparents. Yeah. Everybody can be on a bike and uh, yeah, have some good time together and you still be able to chat a little bit, uh, to chat along. So yeah, the bike is great and bringing people together and it goes through all generations. Mari, one last question on that kind of theme is cycling has been historically known for being a little elitist and exclusive. What, what can we do now that we're getting more people on Zwift and taking our neighbors that, you know, never ridden before, we take them out on their mountain bike that's been hanging up in their garage or, or gravel. How, what is a way that new people coming into the sport can feel a little bit more accepted? And what can the people in the sport do to help those people and make them feel a little bit more inclusive in, in our beautiful sport? Well, I mean, I think that one of the big things is that the industry needs to recognize that, that we need to make the change. And it, I feel like that's what's starting to happen. You know, you see Pinarello putting it out there that that's part of their initiative. You see USA Cycling putting together a DEI task force. Um, I think it's as we all start to understand that we want the sport to grow and the way to grow is to have more diversity, um, it, it's going to start happening. I also think that as more women start staying in the sport longer, you know, you're going to see more women or more younger women getting involved in the sport. Um, you know, and when you can see faces like your own in the, in the crowd, then you're not so worried about trying it. Like I did never see any Asian women, you know, in the Peloton necessarily, but now you see some, right. And I think that as we start seeing different colored faces out there and people from different backgrounds and everything starts to change because as you know, and I know like when you first went to Europe and when I first went there, you know, initially you felt like every, or I felt like we were all so different. But once I got there, I realized, no, we're not really that different. You just have to understand the, where people are coming from. And then it, then you can start to work together to make things better. And I think that's basically what's where we're at in cycling right now is realizing we have more in common than we don't. And as long as we share that, we'll get more people involved. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know what works really well? A little wave. <laughs> A little wave. That, that's, that, I don't that understand helps. the people who don't wave. They have that. I, I think it must be obligatory if a cyclist is passing the other cyclist that you have to wave. Um, I actually have that as well, that people like, you know, don't say hi or even don't, don't even answer where you go. What the heck was that all about? You know, you're on a bike, I'm on a bike. At least like, you know, show like a little bit of respect and say hi. I remember my early days uh, when I used to train in France, uh, the six years I used to live there, I was extra friendly to all these old gentlemen groups on Saturday morning rides because there might have been a French Tour de France winner in that group. So you better say hi to them. You know, maybe there's Tour de France stage winner in there. So, and it doesn't hurt at all. It doesn't cost you anything and it gets you a long way just to be friendly and, you know, yeah, absolutely. Mari, we did find a quote from Value News, which is supposed to be from you. And it goes like this. If I was doing a local race, I would enter the men's race and the women's race just to get the miles in. Is that true? Is that uh, from you and you actually did that? I did. <laughs> I always felt like you needed to support the women's race, but um, but the good training came from racing with the guys. So I would do that first or, or, or however it worked. I would, I would try and do the men's race and the women's race. I did do a few stage races uh, with, the, with the guys, which was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> wow i guess i should make you the shutter blacks award of the week then for this that's that's tough awesome awesome mari thanks again for giving us the chance to have this fantastic talk to you it was absolutely lovely and interesting to see and to listen to um, your story your background your history and your visions of the future of cycling thank you Okay, folks, here we go again with the hashtag Shut Up Legs Award of the Week. Yenzi, who's your pick this week? Well, I picked Fabio Jakobson 
the Dutch rider who had this horrible crash in Tour of Pologne last year. And just recently I uh, followed up on him and um, after several surgeries and a lot of pain and agony, he actually rides his bike. And according to my old teammate and his current teammate, Michael Morkov from Denmark, he is doing pretty well. That, in my eyes, deserves the Shutter Blacks Award for this week that he is on his way back. I love to see that. That's great news. I would love to get him on the podcast. You actually just gave me two ideas. Uh, get Michael Marco on here as well. He's an old buddy of ours from the Saxo yeah, Bank days. Absolutely. So, man, you know, okay, I'm, I'm old, but I don't think I've seen a race as exciting as Strada Bianchi was this year. Again, very super competitive, mega high level. We're all looking at Matteo Vanderpol, and even on TV, it looks like he's there, he's not there. And then towards the end, man, going up that final wall to Siena, that, that was just a masterful, masterful display of y'all don't got a chance. I mean, he makes an acceleration before they get to Siena. They, they cover him, they panic a little bit. It's like, wow, did he just burn his last match? Then they're going up the wall and he just kind of takes over the pace, kind of like a, a fakey do attack we used to call Yenzi, you know, just kind of string it out a little. And then when Alaphilippe came up to him, then he actually attacked. I mean, it was so beautiful to watch. And I know I said it last week, uh, I'm going to pick him probably quite a few times this year. I'm going to ride this one all the, all the way to the beach and give Matteo Vanderpool again, my hashtag shut up legs rider of the week well that's all our time for this week huge thanks to mari for joining us thanks for listening everyone please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends the show was a value news production in association with shock GRF. the producer was mark payne and this episode was edited by kirk warner follow us on twitter and instagram at Bobby and Jens, B-O-B-B-Y-A-N-D-J-E-N-S, and share your cycling stories with us.